Castro in Brazil. How long have you been practicing? Um, well, I, I, I first got my hand into a, a Buddhist book about, I think, five to seven to five years ago, something like uh -huh. that. And it was uh, a Bhikkhu Bodhi's book that translated uh, suttas from the Pali Canon. So mm -hmm. I got into that. Um, so on and off about that time. And I've, I've been, been meditating like regularly every day for, I guess, uh, six months now. Before that, I, I meditated, I guess, every week, but on and off. Mm -hmm. So, um, do you have a practice? Yes. What do you practice? Uh, Easiest way to answer my question is, do you have a name? Like Gowanka, Chuladasa, Mahasi, something mm. like that. Mm -hmm. I guess no. Um, I've read a, a, a bunch of stuff. Um, hmm. But yeah, not under any of those names. I kind of read the suttas, I practice what I can during like normal life and sitting right now, I've been, this week I've been practicing the, like the four first steps of the Anapanasati, which is okay. knowing breathing long or short and uh, breathing no, uh, aware of the, the body and relaxing the body. Yeah. All right. What you're talking about there um, is the Kaya Nupasana. It's the introductory material that's given uh, in Anapanasati, but it's certainly not the way to practice Anapanasati. That uh, the first thing I guess I should introduce, and I would only spend a little bit of time doing this, is to talk about the difference between the organized method and the natural method. Every human being lives his life in a natural method in the sense that things happen and we deal with them. But our entire educational system, including the way that we write books, is all in an organized way. And so we have the kind of delusional thinking that if we heard it first, it must be first. And if we heard it second, it must be the second thing. And if we heard it ninth, it must be the ninth thing. Uh, when I in can fact, tell you. the ninth one is number one. Yes. Oh, okay. I, I can tell you I'm, I'm not trying to make it in order. I, I actually, oh, okay. I'll tell you a name. I'm, I'm, I'm reading a book by Bhikkhu Analeo about the Anapanasati. I don't know that one. Where is he from? Tell me about him. Um, I don't know where he's, where he's from. He wrote a book on the, the Satipatthanas, which I own also, but I, I figure I do the Anapanasati one first. He took 
and wrote a book on Satipatthana and then wrote another book on Anapanasati? Yes. Okay. Yes. His, That's his, disappointed uh, because it's actually the same topic. Maybe he, he actually, should have wrote, wrote two books on Satipatthana Anapanasati, volume one and two. Yeah, possibly. He, he talks about that, actually, that it's, it's, it's supposed to accomplish the same practice. Actually, the Satipatthana Sutta only has some details in it that make Anapanasati understandable. And the Anapanasati is practiced for the fulfillment, then, of the details in the Satipatthana. But we actually practice the Anapanasati and the Satipatthana for the fulfillment of the Sambhojana, the seven factors of enlightenment. But in the area of the Satipatthana Sutta, the Sambhojana is not mentioned. It's only mentioned in the Anapanasati Sutta. Instead, what is mentioned in the Satipatthana is the Eightfold Noble Path and the Four Noble Truths. But basically, what happens is, is that the fulfillment of the Eightfold Noble Path is the Sambhojana. These are the factors of enlightenment to where the Eightfold Noble Path are actually the factors that need to be developed as skills so that when they come up to scratch, then they become factors of enlightenment. And this is a point that a lot of students don't, don't understand, that actually the teaching of the Buddha is very small, is very tight. You could get it down to completely understanding the teachings of the Buddha down to three words. Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. I was expecting you to say that. <laughs> I tend to like the song, Don't Worry, Be Happy, because that's the entire teachings of the Buddha. Dukkha, worry, be happy. Freedom from Dukkha. And so the Satipatthana, Anapanasati are actually... Um, let us call it the items in the mental gem. And that the Eightfold Noble Path is the method that we're going to use these dumbbells and barbells and treadmills in the gym. Okay. Okay. And so basically the Eightfold Noble Path is the four items on the path that are the most important is right view, right sati, right um, effort, and right attitude. That in fact, right sati and right uh, view come together, and then with right effort, they run and circle around each other, growing and making them strong, and then with it gets stronger, it becomes right attitude. With right attitude coming in, that's what gives the right organization of the mind or right unification of mind that many students, when they hear the term, and I guess Bhikkhu's, uh Bodhi would also, would translate uh, Sama Arya Samati into right noble concentration. He could not be more wrong. That concentration and sati, uh, uh, samati are not at all related. 
Okay. In fact, they're diametrically opposites. So let me explain to you what we mean by that. Concentration is then um, an example is frozen concentrated orange juice. If you get it concentrated enough, you can make it into a powder they call tang. Right? Yes. So that's concentrated orange juice. Do you actually eat frozen concentrated orange juice? Not at all. Do you actually eat tang? No. <laughs> no so the concentrated form is not fit for consumption, is it? Yes. Now you see where we're going, okay? Samadhi means something else. Samadhi means gathering together the factors that are needed. So if you want to drink orange juice and all you've got is tang, you need to add something that's missing. What's missing? The water. All right. When you put the water in it, it's no longer concentrated, is it? It's samadhi now. Another example of samadhi would be a uh, Western uh, um, American Indian teepee. I don't know if they ever had teepees in South America, but they did in the plains of North America. Do you sure know what a teepee is? A teepee is a tent that has a number of poles that are all stacked together around, and then they put fur around it, and that there's a top point where all of those poles meet together, and that's called okay. a samate point, right? But when you take the tent down and put all the poles together for transportation, now you've got them concentrated. Oh, I see. So it's that kind. So all right, but you, if, you want to, if you want to move a tent, you concentrate it. You unpack or you pack it up. If you want to use the tent, you've got to make it samati. You've got to open it up and have the ridge folds connected together like that so that you've got a frame to put the tent around. Mm. All right. and, and are those the, the seven factors or five? Uh... Well, let us talk about it in the sense that what we're really speaking about is one who is unified in mind. Their mind is unified. Why is the mind unified? Because it's got well-developed view, wisdom, investigation. It's got bright sati, which means that unremitting, we keep coming back. We keep waking up and waking up and waking up over and over again, waking up. We have the right effort. In fact, right effort, when it's fully developed, becomes almost energetic. As soon as we remember, we automatically take a deep breath. It doesn't take any effort anymore. We automatically brighten the mind. It doesn't take any effort to come out of our misery into our happiness. We just spring right into it. Okay, so these are the path factors. Right effort, right sati, right mindfulness, or excuse me, right view, that give us the right attitude. The attitude of the Buddha is, is uh, summed up in one word. He was a lion. Right? Now that's an attitude. When you have the attitude that you're on top of this situation, whatever situation it is, you can handle this. You can handle it with joy, 
with a plum, uh, with uh, an aloof, high quality status that you can handle anything. This is the attitude that we're actually developing. And with that attitude and together with the other three factors of right effort, right sati, and right um, attitude, or excuse me, right uh, view, this gives one a unified mind. And if you're in a state of a uh, unified mind, which means you're satisfied, you're secure, you're content, you're the boss here. You got it made. You don't want anything. If you don't want anything, then how could you possibly go harm someone to steal something that you don't want or need? So one's morality then becomes the outcome of a pure mind. And Buddhism, believe me, is all about morality. But they, many of them have it upside down. Oh, more, 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 more you get, the better your mind will be. Is upside down and never to be done. No, it's mind, purity of mind, cleanliness of mind, wholesomeness of mind will lead then to high class morality. And in fact, you could see it in another direction. You've probably heard the concept of metta. Yes. And along with that are its brothers, metta, karuna, mudita, upika, which together are called the Brahma Paharas. Is that too much poly for you? No, no, I'm, I'm on it. Okay. Well, think of the metta as the same way as our morality. In the sense that there are many people who say, oh, well, I, I meditate on, on metta or I teach metta meditation and things like that. Okay. Well, metta is generally the outcome of a pure mind, not something that purifies the mind. You can sit there and say, may all beings be happy and may Uncle George be happy. But when Uncle George comes and slams my foot and says, get out of here. Where's my meta for George? Uh huh. <laughs> yeah, I, I figured that out uh, before. That it's kind of easier to practice meta doing stuff than seeing. Okay. Thinking. Well, you see, this is the same thing that happened in Christianity, that they have all of these very high ideals like agape and love and neighborliness and uh, taking care of the poor and generosity. You've heard all of these things, right? The problem is, is that the, the, the students of these things are never given an actual method of purification of the mind so that they can actually do these things. And so the hindrances of the mind prevent them from living the ideals that their religion holds up for them to practice. And when they can't do it, then they have to say, well, everybody's a sinner, <laughs> original yes. sin, and beside that, you need a savior because you can't free yourself from sin. Yes. Right? Basically, no, that's not what Jesus taught. Jesus taught, in fact, uh, to stay awake. Who can stay awake with me tonight? Yes. Jesus actually points at and hints at the noble path, but the Christians don't get it. 
And so what you're wound up with is the religion of Christianity that has a magic Jesus. Yes, yes, very true. And that's all they've got is just a story about a magic Jesus. They don't have an actual practice method. So when people see Metta Karuna Mudita in that Christian kind of way, they're, they're looking at them as ideals, thinking that there's some practice that will reach these goals or these ideals. To where actually, if you want to have real metta, then start practicing metta on yourself without a panasati. Gladden your own mind. Give yourself friendliness. Become your own nurturing best friend. If you can do that on the inside and get your own mind straightened out, then not only will your morality be high class, but your relationship to other people will also be high class. And so instead of looking for the outer and trying to fix out the outer, hoping that somehow the inner will get fixed that way is the wrong way to go. No, we got to straighten out that inner stuff first. And when we get it straightened out on the inside, then we can deal with the outside world quite handsomely. In other words, if grumpy old George comes in and I've got a whole mind full of uh, mudita and joy, then my mudita, my joy and my happiness will eventually trump his grumpy. But I got to have enough of it because he's going to grump for quite a while. Yes, <laughs> and it does of it. <laughs> and so where's all of my joy? I got to stay up with it. I got to match him joy for grumps. Until I win. Not an easy task. So that means that we got to practice joy. It's something that we've got to give ourselves. It's a, it's a benefit that you deserve. But the whole society has been telling you, no, you got to be miserable and work hard. And you keep miserable and work hard for long enough. Then somehow or another, you'll get a reward. Yeah. But the Buddha's way is, no, no, sit down and you get your reward right now. Develop that reward so that you can give that reward to other people. And so this is the practice of Anapanasati. Is to get the mind cleaned out. And the way that we do that is by waking up which is sati, to see what the mind is doing, right view, when we recognize that the mind is unwholesome, is in hindrance, then we change the content of the mind by throwing that out and getting the mind in great shape again. We gladden the mind. If we keep doing that over and over again, not only will we think good thoughts, we'll feel good feelings also. That in one of the ways of saying it is, is that you've spent all of these many years talking yourself into feeling bad. Don't you think it's about time now to talk yourself into feeling good? And yet a lot of people have the idea, oh, meditation, that means I've got to go into no mind. No, if you're in no mind and you stay in no mind and they call the, uh, uh, the hospital and send a, 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 an ambulance, you may come out of your no-mind state in either the uh, intensive care unit or maybe even in the morgue. Mm. Yeah. 
so no mind is not a state that we want to be into, but there is another way of saying it, and that is void of mind. And what we mean by void mind is a mind that's free from unwholesome thoughts and only has wholesome thoughts in it. So not not actually void. Not actually void. No, it's only void of dukkha. And it's full of wholesome things. Wholesome things like this present moment is so nice. Thoughts of, well, I'm glad I don't have to think about that fight anymore. Thoughts of, well, that can wait till tomorrow. I don't have to do it now. Or thoughts of, that can wait forever. I don't ever have to do that. <laughs> So in a way, it's giving yourself permission to be lazy, to come out of your problem solving because you don't have any problems to solve. That everything is hunky-dory already. You're satisfied. When you become satisfied, then the mind is unified. When you're satisfied, you don't want anything. So your uh, metta is beautiful. Your, your morality is top-notch when you don't want anything at all. So how can we get the mind clear of wanting things? Anapanasati. Anapanasati, that's right, to wake up, see that there is wanting in the mind and throw it out. And there's a lot of stuff that meditators want. Many of them will sit in frustration and fight and tease and concentrate, thinking that someday I'll be happy. I just got to keep going, keep working. Someday I'll be happy. But before then, I want a past life experience or two also along the way. I want, I want, I want. I want enlightenment. All right. Isn't that common enough? I want. Yes. Well, wanting things you don't have is a form of suffering. It's dukkha itself. So every time you catch your mind wanting something, say, ah, there you are. I see you, Mr. Desire, Mr. Wanting Something. Out you go. I don't need you. I'm fine as I am. Then we take a really deep, long breath. Step one of Anapanasati. That in fact, we call it anapanasati because of the breathing. The word ana is in breath and, pra, and pana is out breath. And it's exactly the same word as in the Sanskrit when you've heard more than, more than likely you've heard of pranayana. You ever heard of pranayana? Pranayana yes. yoga? Okay. This is what we're doing. At least we're incorporating that part of the practice of getting the breathing going, getting the mind fit for work, and getting rid of the hindrances, and talking ourselves into feeling good, and then we do feel good. And that feeling good that I'm talking about is actually the Pali word is sukha. And sukha is exactly the opposite of dukkha. Dukkha naroda is, in fact, sukha. So we could get it down to two words, dukkha, sukha. They're opposites. In the, in the Thai language, duk and suk are opposites. 
in the Gujarati language, Duki and Suki are opposites. So it's well known. I mean, this has been carried down through the traditions of the various languages since the time of the Buddha, that there is an opposite. And that Sukha that we're talking about, which is a step in Anapanasati to be developed, is to develop being satisfied, to develop the third noble truth of being free from Dukkha. Oh, wow, this is it. No suffering around here anywhere. (laughs) Nothing. (laughs) Nope, nothing. (laughs) No Dukkha anywhere. Okay, so this is the Sukha. This is the third noble truth, in fact, is we're practicing the uh, right uh, waking up to check to see that this is, in fact, a hindrance, to throw that out and to get ourselves back into a state of satisfaction. You keep practicing that over and over again, and soon you'll get to know, I can do it. I can do this. Now we're developing also the quality of pity. That's the winner's mentality, the lion. And the roar of the lion is, got it. I got this thing. I know it now. That's the right attitude of, I can do this. No matter how uh, dirty my mind gets, no matter how cluttered with hindrance, no matter how big a deal that comes along that I think is important, I can throw all of that out and come back to a good state. Come back to a state of satisfaction. And that can be happening at any time, even if mother-in-law comes over. (laughs) Even if somebody shoots the dog, even in handcuffs, sitting in the back of the paddy wagon, it's still my choice. Am I going to sit here and feel good handcuffed, or am I going to feel bad handcuffed? Okay. Okay. You get what I'm talking about, huh? All right. So that's the question. Can you throw the hindrances out? Because I can tell you a lot of people sitting with their handcuffs in the back of a police wagon, that's opportunity for real dukkha. Yes. Oh, poor me. (laughs) They're terrified. They're afraid. They don't know how to handle it. So, if you can handle that situation, even in your own mind, then you know that you can handle anything. So that's the right attitude. The attitude of a lion. The attitude of, got this one wired. Another one that I like very much is, hold my beer. (laughs) (laughs) Because when that's said, that means I got something to do, and I know I can do it, and I've got it. I've got that one. So this is the right attitude, and that goes along with right sati. The sati is the important skill because that's the one that's the wake up. You've got to wake up. You can't feel like a lion if you can't remember to feel like a lion. If you forget, then you'll wind up feeling like the victim that we've been feeling like all of these years anyway. But if we can remember to wake up, remember, I've got this. Remember. I can take a deep breath and feel good. Is is can I? Uh, I'll ask a question, not a hundred percent on that line. Is uh, sati uh, also the, the the ability to be 
constantly mindful of what you're doing? I don't use the word constant. Okay. I use the word unremitting. Mm. I don't expect anyone to be constant anything. Every new mind moment is a new mind moment, a new opportunity to wake up. Okay. In other words, we live in a quantum world. We really do. Everything is quantum. You know what I mean by quantum? Yeah. Electrons, they don't get knocked out of their valence unless there's a quantum of energy. And you can take it from there. Everything is quantumized. A photon is quantumized. Your mind, your fact, the, the circuits in the brain, the um, electrons, the, excuse me, the neurons, they fire. Have you ever heard of that? Yes. You know what I mean by that? They're not steady. They're not just, oh, no, I'm a, I'm a, <laughs> I'm a neuron and I'm yelling and I'm yelling. No, they don't do it like that. They fire. Can you fire again? Fire yourself into waking up. So much for the word constant. <laughs> okay, I get it. But in fact, that's one of the big problems with the Western mind is they think of time like that. There's actually no time at all. The only time you've ever had was now. That's the only time that you've ever had, you ever will have, is right now. Are you going to be awake now? Are you going to have sati now? Because that's what Anapanasati is all about, is to wake up, to be here now. Be in the now. The Buddha called himself, do you know the name? Tathagata. What yes. does Tathagata mean? The one that's gone. Gone where? Nibbana. That's my guess. Actually, the technical way that has been badly translated is thus gone one. Because that's the literal the translation. But the word thus here is this. Mm. So, so basically it means the Tathagata is one who is here now. He's gone to the here. To where everybody else is caught in the past and the future. But he's gone. He's not in the past. He's not in the future. He's just now. So that's how we learn to practice Anapanasati. And believe me, it is a 180 degree upside down way of looking at the world. The whole world is based upon past and future. And what I mean by past and future, I mean it's very event-oriented. You have an event, then you have time, then you have another event, then you have time, and then you have another event, like graduate from first grade, and then you have another event, you graduate from middle school, then you have another event, you get laid, then you have another event, you get to finish high school. You see the event idea that, that is all built into it. And so we think that there's going to be events in our meditation. But we need to get out of the idea of events into this is it. What is happening now is just fine. There's no event to it. 
And when you, when you get your mind completely free from having events, then that's what we mean by opaca. Mm-hmm. When you're completely okay. balanced, that means you don't have any events at all that's going to take you out of balance. No events, nothing's happening. Nothing, literally. <laughs> but our whole lifestyle in the West is going from one event to another to another. And so meditators, they think that, oh, if I sit down in meditation, I'll have an event. And the idea, no, we're here to develop skill. And the skill, one of the skills, is to get out of our event-oriented world and get into the present moment. It's completely free from events. So you can just sit and relax. Easy going, nothing to do, no place to go. The spring comes and the grass grows all by itself. That's a haiku. Yeah, very zen. Busho. So think about it like that, that this present moment is all there is. And yet everything you've been hoping for, wanting, desiring, planning, uh, uh, grieving over from the past and all kinds of other stuff is gone. Your past is gone. Your future, who knows? No, the future is yet to become and who knows what it will be when he gets here. The only time you ever have is now. Please enjoy it. You have my permission. <laughs> Thank you. Do you give yourself permission to just be happy, just enjoy the present moment? Yeah. Yeah. Just had a student say that he was telling himself, you, you should meditate. You ought to go meditate. You should meditate. And then, you know, he doesn't want to. Well, that should, that you should meditate, you go meditate, that's a hindrance. If you could wake up to that and say, oh, I see you hindrance. And because I see you, I can take a deep breath and say, oh, I don't have to think about I should meditate. I can just, in fact, enjoy doing it. Could we say that the hindrances are hindrances to enjoying the present? Precisely. That's exactly what they are. That's why they're called that. They're the obstructions of the mind that prevent you from one being in the present moment. Number two, prevent you from enjoying this present moment, to be delighted in this present moment. You can become delighted in this present moment. What's to prevent you? Your hindrances, that's what's to prevent you. And when you can catch those things and throw them out of the mind, now you can do what the, with the mind what you want to do. You can literally train yourself to feel the way you want to feel. Because you did train yourself to feel the way you do now. But you did that ignorantly over many years. Now you can do it wisely and train yourself to feel the way you want to feel, which I assume would be good. <laughs> to feel yes. good, to feel satisfied, to feel happy. 
So this yeah, is a training of Anapanasati, is to train the mind into getting into a feeling of sukha, into a feeling of um, contentment. Uh, let me ask you something. It seems to me that, that the practice in this way is very like applicable to everyone and every situation pretty much it's it's all inclusive but yeah the, the, the buddha was sometimes like uh, like sometimes he 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 put many restrictions on what people should or shouldn't do so why is that if the, if the practice is like for for anyone pretty much there is also a long long answer to that one but i will refrain and and give you the short answer okay there was a time when sariputta came to the buddha i think it was sariputta it may have been another month late and asked the Buddha the question in the sense that, you know, many years ago, there were many, many nobles and very few rules. And now there are many, many rules with all of this big sangha, and there's not so many nobles. And the Buddhist admitted, yes, that is so that in fact there are indications that the Buddha regretted that so many things happened that he needed to make a rule about. And that we can see now that many of the rules that were made, you know, they're in the Paddy Monks, there's 227. Most monks don't even know all of the 227. Very, very few scholars can list them one after another after another. It's exactly which one goes where. I came pretty close to that, but I've forgotten a lot of it because I figured out that it was irrelevant. But then at the time close to the Buddha's death, he, sa he gave actually through Ananda permission that if the monks want to, they can, yes. in fact, modify the rules. I remember they should that. have done that. They should but have they, done that. They didn't because the Buddha knew because that. They, nope. No, they couldn't because they couldn't agree on what the new rules would be. So they left their old rules in place because they couldn't get a quorum on what the new rules were. Sounds very much like the Senate in the United States now. <laughs> they can't get anything done because they can't agree on what to do. And so the yeah. old laws, the old rules just remain in place. That was, in fact... Um, there's some controversy, especially in my mind, as to whether that was the second or the third council, and whether this that one happened before or after the time of the soap. Um, but that was the second council, was to straighten out that the Paddy Mork was going to be the Paddy Mork. It worked in the time of the Buddha. It's going to work now. But Mahayana has always decided to change the rules. There's only the Theravatans that, that have gotten stuck in that. And that many of the Theravatas will point out, yes, and there's good reason for it. That he, and that many of the rules that we just don't 
adhere to at all anymore as a as kind of an unspoken point. In fact, this one seems kind of strange, but there is a rule. This is a Patty Monk rule that monks should not bathe more than once every two weeks, fortnight, on a, on a half moon. They should, at the new moon, take a bath, and on the full moon, take a bath. I Why will follow that. that. <laughs> I did for a while. <laughs> for, for a long while. Now I follow the rule, when you're told to take a bath, you go take a bath. <laughs> But why would such a rule have gotten there? Was because there was a time when there was a drought. And that was a wise maneuver. And so in the time of drought, that would be something that the monks would fall back on. Now, that doesn't happen in Thailand. If any country's got plenty of water, this is it. And they still have their own kind of droughts when it comes to uh, how much rice they can produce. But you go up into the drought-stricken area, I know the area very well. Believe me, there's water. It's not that much of a drought. They just don't have enough to plant every patty. <laughs> but if you get a real drought, then that's a good idea. If you were out in the desert, no water around anywhere, are you going to take a bath as often as you do now? No. So it depends upon the circumstances, and that's one of the rules that had a particular circumstance. Okay, so there's others. In fact, the way that the, it's set up had to do with a lot of social stuff. There's an entire area in the Patimok about eating. And that many of the rules that are in the eating, we would say, of course, those are true. This is what we teach children. And others would be, oh, well, we don't do that way at all. An example of that would be that in the time of the Buddha and in Sri Lanka, commonly today, the monks eat with their hands. Actually, all over Sri Lanka and in India, they eat with their hands. In Thai and in China, they eat with spoons and chopsticks. But now they have Western forks and things like that. Um, but the utensils are not the issue. The issue is how you handle them. So you could take that one that you don't uh, spend time making big balls of food in your bowl. Would be the same as don't fill that, that soup spoon that you use with a heaping a spoonful of food to put in. In other words, you take small bites. So mm -hmm. this, is, this is the kind of thing that's in much of the patty mark. But then some of the stuff is really, really beneficial. Beneficial in the sense that it gives the monks automatically ways to, to behave with each other. For instance, they don't insult each other. Uh, they don't hide each other's equipment. They don't uh, um, uh, lie. Uh, they don't uh, gossip about one monk uh, to another behind his back. Many things like this, and these are the kind of rules that they do follow because it promotes friendliness, happiness, and joy. And it also promotes having a clear mind. Why? 
because if you've got a clear mind, you're not going to lie to people. So telling a deliberate lie would naturally be part of the Patty Mock as a framework. But really, it's, what it's really pointing at is how does one live his life when he is free from dukkha, as opposed to you should live like this even though you've got a bunch of dukkha. I see. Okay. Does that help with that question about all of the rules? Yeah, yeah, it does. There's also a very silly one in there that I like very much, and that is a monk is not supposed to carry a certain amount of weight in wool for a particular distance. I think it's like, um, uh, a, let us say, five kilos of wool for a uh, distance of six miles. He can't do that. That's a no-no. I don't think that we have very much difficulty in following that rule. <laughs> yeah. uh, another follow-up question came up that... Uh, so, we might... Maybe the reason the Buddha said that there were no uh, householder arhants was possibly possibly because like it you're you're using the word possibly so you're admitting something that i know already and that is the buddha did not say that well there is a sutta where he said he had, that he didn't knew any there is in fact this situation that an arahant sees no danger and feels no fear in the face of danger which means in certain circumstances they can get killed. You don't want an Arahat out on a big city street in New York. You'll get killed. Because he sees no fear. Does that help you understand that issue? The, if 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 one is an arahat, he's known to be an arahat, and he is well taken care of within the sangha. And while he's in the sangha, he's out of danger. You don't want arahats out wandering the in the world. They're going to say something to get them killed, <laughs> or they're not going to conform with the society. Yeah. Okay. The Darahat is, is dedicated to the truth. And the truth can get you killed in the United States. Packs of lies are okay. <laughs> but if you tell the truth at the wrong time in the wrong place, it can get you killed. So that's why we don't want our arahants out, out in the world. We want to give them a safe place to hang out and be happy. Does that, does that help? Yes, yes. Okay, that's what's actually they're getting at. I think that one of the sutras you may be thinking about is number 116 in the Majjhima Nikaya. Because that's, that's the issue there. Is yeah, there are no arahants in, in, in the lay life. 
but there were two well-known lay people who were teachers of the Dhamma who even taught monks because their Dhamma was so high quality that one of them was known to be able to walk into a, a, a group of Brahmins and win the, win the argument always, hands down, always had a winning argument. And he was known to be an anigami. So basically, that 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 state then of the distinction between an anigami and the, and an arahat is the arahat is actually completely fearless, and that's dangerous. Completely, like physiologically. Pardon? Like physiologically. Fearless. I don't, I don't understand. I mean, without the psychological and, and physical processes that create fear. Well, all the physical uh, processes are going to be there, but the instinct to fear, the instinct for self-preservation is missing. Not missing, just uh, not overreacting. And we'll talk more about the instincts later, but basically the underlying quality for every human being is the self-preservation instinct. When you've gotten to the point that there is no self and that you've got your instincts under control, then what's the point of preserving anything? I mean, I can die in this moment, that's fine. There's the other guys who don't want the Arahat dead. The Arahat, he don't care. <laughs> but the Sangha, they like to keep their Arahats around, and they've got quite a few really old ones. Achan Panyananda, the last time I saw him, and he's the abbot of the biggest wad in Thailand at Wat Tulipatan. He was 97, and he was sharp. Last time I saw uh, K. Sathero, who was the Sumdet Sangaraj of South Thailand, he was 107. Not a world, not a world event or anything, but he was just an old man. They lived for a long time. Right now, my best friend, Achan Po, is 88. If you've got no stress, you've got no worries, why not just keep her ticking? But you need to be in a safe place to do that. Wall Street's not a very safe place. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> So you don't want your Arahats on Wall Street. Want to keep them secure. That's that's the only thing that that's getting at is is that it's dangerous to be fearless in the world. You can, but you possibly won't last long. Yeah, that's the danger. You may not last long. Okay. 
Well, is that the only last question? This has been good. Um, well, I guess before we 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 live off, I guess a practice question would be good. A what? A practice question. All right. So, well, I, I guess you 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 already answered whatever I could question. Um, yeah, so uh, during sitting, I, I, I've told you what what I've been doing. It's and it, it it's in line with with what you said here, um, like like uh, bringing my mind to to the present and and being joyful in the present and I guess learning not to not to drift off and want something there or then or whatever. So I think my practice is in line with that. Okay. Yes, you keep practicing like that, and we'll go into more detail at another time. Okay. Especially the detail about sati on the in-breath and sati on the out-breath, to make sure that you're controlling the breathing so that you do make a note that this is an in-breath. You don't have to tell yourself a story about it, just note that this is an in-breath and this long in-breath. Okay. And note that this is an out-breath, a long out-breath. That gives you plenty of time to, to note all kinds of other stuff that's going on, including noting that the mind might wander away. But if you're actually controlling the breathing, then the mind is not likely to wander so quickly away than if you're just kind of halfway looking at it or sort of just kind of noticing it. No, we actually want to take charge, take over, take control of the breathing. If you cannot control your breathing, then you'll not be able to control your thoughts. And if you cannot control your thoughts, then you can't control the way you feel, which means you're doomed to repeat your old past. That's okay. destiny. <laughs> but if you can learn to control your breath, then you can learn to control your mind. If you can learn to control your mind, then you can learn to control your feelings. And if you can learn to control your feelings, you then you can feel like a lion. And I, I should uh, uh, aim at doing that for every breath. Every breath. Like, every breath. Notice, is this a long in-breath? Is this a long out-breath? Even to the point of a sigh. Okay. And and throughout the day also, like I don't need to limit myself to do sitting. Whenever you remember. Okay. Sati is the key element in this. If you can't remember, you can't do it. If you can remember, then you can do it. So how often can you remember to do it? Yeah, I, I guess I've, I've been doing practices similar to that for a time now so so i i sometimes forget but but i guess it's kind of good my sati so yeah i'll keep on that road all right so before we go when are you going to call again uh 
<laughs> I don't know, next next week. Or, okay. You can call yeah. once a week or twice a week. That'll be all right. Okay. All right. So we'll see you in oh. a few days. Yes. See okay, you Pedro. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. I'm, I'm holding my phone with another hand, so I'll do like okay. this. <laughs> all right. Thank you very much. Yes, we'll see you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.